quick one. If you can hit follow or subscribe to this podcast, that really helps me track new listeners. Cheers. As always, it's important to remember that the Wealth Journal podcast is not financial advice. It's purely here for educational and entertainment purposes. We don't make any recommendations, any stock picks or anything like that. One thing I would advise if you do want financial advice, please go and speak to a qualified financial advisor. Now with that out the way, let's get cracking. This week on the podcast, I welcome Paul Quirk. Paul is an acquisition entrepreneur and the host of the Buy and Build podcast, which aims to help people on their journey towards buying a business. He's held a number of roles at JP Morgan, where he spent almost a decade working for the US-based investment bank. And he's previously co-founded two startups, one in organic nutrition and the other focused on placing international interns abroad. And over 18 months ago, he founded Citium Capital, which is an investment vehicle set up to acquire great small businesses. So, Paul, welcome to the Wealth Journal podcast. I hope I got all that right. Yeah, yeah, spot on. Thanks, Jay, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to, to chat to you today. Fantastic. So those that might be listening to the Wealth Journal podcast for the first time, I basically invite the listener to follow my journey towards wealth, but also join the journey of my guests. And I guess one of the most common and proven ways to building wealth and possibly the most lucrative is to eventually own and build your own business. Most of the wealthiest people on the planet have done just that. So entrepreneurship is essentially a path to wealth. And I want to start with the term entrepreneur, but more specifically the term acquisition entrepreneur. So Paul, what does that mean and how does it differ from the the standard definition? Yeah, so I think at at the highest level, basically what it is saying is taking the path to entrepreneurship by buying a company rather than starting a company. I think everyone understands the idea of going out and starting a company and kind of in the in the modern day, most of that looks kind of tech related or tech enabled. And that was my original idea behind entrepreneurship when I was kind of studying. And even in my first years at JP Morgan, it was kind of the sexy thing to do was to kind of go out and start a startup or work in a startup. So you can kind of have that entrepreneurship feel. Um, and later I only learned about this other path, which was, well, you can actually kind of skip the first few years where you're looking for product market fit, looking for those first few customers uh, and acquire an existing business. And when I heard about that and I saw people were doing that successfully, uh, some of those were ex-colleagues of mine. I was like, okay, this is intriguing because you, you touched on in the beginning. I had a couple of startups that I bootstrapped myself and they were not unsuccessful, but they were definitely not going to replace my, my, my salary when I was working at JP Morgan. And and you know I, they, they were they were funded by myself, so they were kind of like just these small little um, side projects, if you will. And I was like, "Wow, this is incredibly difficult." Um, but this opportunity um, makes a lot of sense. So yeah, that that was basically the genesis of what I set out to do with Citium Capital. And and yeah, it's an interesting part. I think uh, it won't be for everybody. Some people like. Um, the kind of startup route, and that makes complete sense. But at least knowing that there is an option, another option available can make sense for some people. Yeah, I think for entrepreneurs, a lot of time spent trying to find the idea, which is you know, something that maybe no one's ever thought of before, and then almost just build from the ground up, which more often than not, and the stats show this, that 
well, probably 99.9% of startups fail. I guess, like you said, you're skipping that stage and buying established businesses. What sort of businesses are then you are you looking at? Is it areas where you've got certain expertise or you know, sort of what's your criteria? Yeah, I think it probably does make a lot of sense to kind of dig into sectors where you have expertise. The problem with my background is I have a kind of broad investment background. So unless I'm going out to buy, I don't know, like a financial services provider or something related to that, which there aren't many of, and most of them are at a size that is just unattainable, I kind of have broad experience and no real deep sector experience in kind of the more blue collar or kind of unsexier businesses, which we can go into, but those are some of the, the, the classic targets for acquisition entrepreneurs. So I had to kind of, you know, step back and maybe take an investment banking approach and think about industries that have interesting tailwinds to them and some catalysts that could potentially make, um, you know, even, even a relatively poor acquisition, if that happened to be the case, the industry should support it. So you kind of have at least some, some buoyancy in the industry, and then you look into what companies make sense. So that's the approach that I took. Um, but I mean, I've spoken to people on, on, on my podcast that, that there was one guy in particular that comes to mind. He had a background in industrial robotics. He had worked for, for an SME uh, kind of as the number two, and he was waiting to buy out his owner who was you know, looking to retirement. And then he heard about this route and he was like, well, I don't actually have to wait for him. Uh, I can just go out and buy one myself. And he did that and he's bought three and he's doing exceptionally well. And he has obviously specific experience. Uh, whereas I've had to kind of, you know, l- learn as I go, but I think that's also part of the interesting journey. Um, it may take longer to close that first acquisition, but it's, it's, it's quite interesting learning about all these different small businesses, things I never even thought of. I mean, obviously in hindsight, you, you, you hear about the business, you're like, okay, of course this business exists, but you know, there's some really interesting ones <laughs> that just pop up and, and the, and the owners have done very well for themselves. Um, it's, it's very, um, you know, understated, but, but very successful businesses. So I've actually quite enjoyed that aspect of it. And I guess I'm keen to sort of understand why, why become an entrepreneur? You know, you worked at JP Morgan. I'm sure you had a good role there, maybe a little bit more security. Why take that step? Why take that risk? Yeah. I mean, I think so in terms of maybe risk appetite, I'll touch on first. I've always had a very, I guess, comfortable level with taking risk, calculated risk. Uh, and I was in a, I, I'd done, you know, decently well for myself for the 10 years I was at JP Morgan, kind of saving and investing, you know, as, as, you know, as I was preaching <laughs> to, the, to the, the people's money who I was looking after. And I just, I knew I wanted to do something entrepreneurial. I had some runway um, to kind of go out and do this. And I thought to myself, if, 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 if not now, then, then never. So I took that risk. Um, and that's not to say it's been easy. I mean, it, it's quite, it's kind of, um, searching for that first acquisition is, is interesting because most days you're just, you know, told no various versions of no, you're not generating anything. You're not creating something tangible. So it's quite an odd, um, journey, but if you keep, you know, focus on what the end, end outcome has, or it will be, then, you know, I think, um, it's kind of motivating. And, and like I touched on earlier, I've actually quite enjoyed the search process, just getting to wrap my head around all these different business models, thinking about unit economics, 
margins, how, how you can play with certain variables. And I think at the very least, it's made me a better investor. Um, but, but I've actually quite enjoyed digging into it, but you know, it's definitely not for anyone. Um, I think my wife is stressed most days more than I am uh, for me, <laughs> but I seem to be handling it okay for now. <laughs> that's the that's the trade off, isn't it? With some of these some of these ventures, the, the stress. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess from acquiring maybe established businesses, you've already got product market fit. You maybe already got customers. You've already got a workforce. It's like you said, it's quite a more of an accessible way and a proven way to actually jump into entrepreneurship. Is that they, the, the, the sort of main pros? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's part of it. So that's not to say that, that it's without risk for sure. I mean, you are buying a small business that's inherently going to be risky. The workforces are not massive. So you could lose, you know, two members of staff and that could be 10% of your workforce if you have kind of 20 employees, you know? So it's not completely riskless, but it's, probably less risky than a startup. And Stanford um, actually does a, a report every two years on, on kind of the more theoretical um, version of this called a search fund. And there's quite a bit of data now behind that that goes into kind of the IRRs and the returns for investors and the returns for entrepreneurs. And it's quite an interesting asset class. So even, even if maybe you don't think this is for you and you have some money to deploy, that could be an interesting way to actually invest. So it's kind of private equity-like a lot smaller deals and you end up kind of backing the company plus the entrepreneur. Um, and I've, I've done a little bit of that in, in, in kind of the last 18 months myself uh, while I look to acquire my, my own first acquisition, but it's, it's a very compelling way to generate returns and kind of hedge some of that risk. So take calculated risk, which is kind of something I, I, I tend to think about a lot on, on kind of how I can manage the downside. So back to the, the, the I guess the, the pros of the model, I think it's, skipping the line in terms of risk versus a startup risk. So if you want to take that entrepreneurial step, this could be a, a lower risk way to do it. Um, you typically have product market fit. A lot of the companies you're looking at, um, I mean, you can look at anything, but you kind of probably want to look at something that's got more five, at least five years of trading history. So you can kind of see, you know, how to do through COVID. Uh, if it's even longer, you can look at some, some of the other years and kind of how that varied. Um, look at margins, how that's evolved, and really get to understand these businesses and how the cash flow works, how the working capital may go up and down, where you could tweak it. So you really get to look at those historical financials and and make a decision based on this company that's existed, and hopefully make a very educated decision. Then you know if it has a future uh, a history of profitability, uh, strong margins, and in an industry that you think is growing, these are all kind of boxes that any investor would want to tick when they're investing in any company, even if it's a public company, like, like something, you know, like, like Amazon or one of these companies, you're going to look at all of these things and dig into the financials. So, I, so I guess one of the other main differences versus doing that is there's a little bit more risk and therefore you'd expect a little bit more return. And typically you're buying these companies with a bit of leverage, maybe even a little bit more than a bit. Uh, so as probably your listeners would know, leverage is going to magnify the upside and the downside, but a lot of wealth is created with the use of leverage. So you can basically, you know, magnify that upside if you acquire a successful business and are able to grow it and potentially exit it. It can be a very, very interesting uh, financial outcome too. So I think it's just a, it's a way to kind of take that entrepreneurial journey, sorry, um, 
still have a very interesting financial outcome in the end. And you kind of skip the line on the startup risk for a number of factors. And then probably on the more qualitative side uh, versus kind of a day job or or even a startup, it's probably a little bit less risky. You probably have a little bit more flexibility if you're, for example, buying a company with a second tier management, perhaps you can kind of take a more of a chairman role and think of things strategically where you have people kind of executing on a day-to-day. Um, so you can kind of take that more strategic role and then build out a portfolio or maybe acquire in that same industry. So you can start to really accelerate and compound uh, what you're working on um, in a pretty interesting way that can be financially, you know, very, very lucrative. Um, so yeah, I think I went to a lot of different places there, but I think I'm um, happy to dive into any one of those factors, but I think they're, they're, those are quite of, those are some of the, the, the key things that I think um, make a journey like this very interesting. I mean, to be able to buy or acquire one, two, three, four, up to 10 million of revenue um, with a portion of debt. So similar to how you'd buy a house, kind of we can go into structuring of deals uh, if you'd like, but it's not, um, you don't need to have millions in the bank to execute this. And it can result in millions if you successfully sell a business or hundreds of thousand cash flow if you want to hold it forever. So it can be very, very interesting. Yeah. I've I've got a few questions on how the, the deals are structured, but I'm going to jump back a little bit in time to maybe your career at JP Morgan, because a few people that will be listening to the podcast have possibly just started their investment journey. And it'd be good to understand maybe the steps that that you took to actually get yourself into a position where you could begin to think about acquiring businesses. So how did you sort of manage your own personal finances initially? You know, where did you invest? Uh, how did you sort of try and save up enough cash to create that runway in order to give you the the platform to to start doing buy and build? Yeah, yeah. So in terms of investing and saving for kind of or during my career at JP Morgan to allow me to do this, I don't think I was doing anything uh, revolutionary. I was um, doing a lot of probably what you and some of your guests preach. So when I was doing my postgraduate, I did an internship at a personal finance company and I got quite intrigued by the topic of how to you know, compound your own wealth and generate wealth. So I dug into kind of, you know, how much you should be spending on rent at the time or how much you should be contributing to your mortgage, what you should be saving, what you should be investing, where you should be investing. So I wasn't really doing anything extraordinary. I just was very strict with myself. Um, I don't and didn't have a very extravagant life uh, relative to my earnings, I guess, Um, other than travel, as you know, Jay, I'm, I'm away on holiday now, but other than that, I didn't really um, spend money on, on many things. I think I bought my first car three years ago and I'm 35. So just to give you an example, like a lot of people will, will earn their first paycheck and go out and, and get themselves a nice car and, you know, or, or, or buy a property to the absolute limit to what they, you know, their credit will allow. I've, I've never done things like that. I preferred to always have liquid uh, liquid investments and try and compound my wealth that way. So, so yeah, I mean, I, I did, I did buy a couple of small rental properties, um, in France where I was living at the time, because it was, it was interesting and in that you could do that with, um, with basically hundred percent mortgage. 
Uh, and so effectively, I didn't have to put any money down. I could keep my liquid uh, money invested. Of course, it was you know highly levered, but it was it was it was not to a size that would put any strain on on me financially. And then they've been rented out entirely. Um, I have and still invest every single month into a, a classic stock portfolio. Again, nothing nothing extraordinary. I, I have kind of my criteria, my rules, and I stick to it regardless. Uh, like in, in times like we've seen in the last couple of weeks, I may look to add a little bit more on pullbacks, um, but I don't try and typically time the market. Um, so I just, I just kind of keep, keep it pretty simple, to be honest. I, I invest mostly in indexes. Uh, sometimes I'll invest in a few individual stocks. Uh, I, yeah, I think, I think that's pretty much it. I've just been really, really, um, I don't even want to say strict cause it sounds, that's, that sounds like I've, you know, restricted myself from certain things. I just kind of have not been extravagant, I guess is, is the right word. And I had more of a thrill of adding to my investment portfolio at the end of each month than buying a material um, object, for example. So I've kind of always done that. And, and yeah, that, that created a bit of a runway for me, I guess. Um, over 10 years, I mean, compounding is a beautiful thing and, and that doesn't even really kick in after 10 years, but yeah. you, know, you, you can do pretty well um, even in a 10-year period. So yeah, I, that, that's basically, I, I've kept it quite simple. I don't think there's too much to it. Paul, I think that's um, yeah, almost amen when it comes to investing. You 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 sort of you do exactly what the literature tells you to do in terms of keep your your expenditure, your material items to a minimum. Focus on yeah. building your your asset column, which is what you've been doing. You've been doing it sort of consistent consistently over ten years, and it's put you in a in a great position. So that's exactly what the podcast. Uh, the podcast talks about on a regular basis. So it's great to see that it's, it's paid off for you. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think uh, I, I touched on this kind of small business asset class, if you will. And I think, I think this is really interesting and, and which is why I started investing in a couple of deals uh, with other entrepreneurs in the last 18 months, because, you know, it's, again, it's physical cash flowing assets Um and the price or the valuation that you're paying is really, really compelling versus most other assets. So you can buy some of these small businesses at three, four, five times EBITDA. Um, and so for, can you just, uh, sorry, can you just oh, um, sorry, yeah. explain <laughs> EBITDA? Yeah, sorry. So basically that's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. It's It's just a kind of easy metric to, quote profit for a company before kind of the non-cash items and before tax uh, and interest it's it's basically used so you can compare different types of companies across the board it's probably not the absolute best way to do it cash flow is probably better but it's not as readily available you have to kind of back into that with a bit of math but essentially so if you think of it you can if you're buying a company so say a company is making 500,000 in profit every month, every year, sorry, and you buy that for four times profit, then you're paying 2 million for that business. Uh, even if you were buying that with 100% debt, which you never would and never could, you could argue that you could pay that debt off in four years. And then that 500K is going to your pocket. That's just to keep it very simplistic. That's not realistic at all. But if you compare that then to property, when 
you buy the property, you put in a tenant to pay off your mortgage, maybe in 20 years, everything that's coming in rental income goes into your pocket. Um, maybe you've been getting a little bit along the way, but just if you think of it that way in terms of return, rate of return or IRR or however you want to look at it, cap rates for, for property, the return on investment is extremely compelling. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So going back to the more structuring side of how you would begin to formulate a deal like this, let's say it's your your first one. What would you what would you need? How much how much cash would you have to sort of put in yourself? I'm sort of got the only example I've got really is buying a house, putting a deposit down, borrowing from the bank. How does it work with a small business? Yeah, so I, I guess it's a little bit more you or you can be a little bit more creative. At the end of the day, your first negotiation hurdle is that is with the 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 seller, the, the current owner or owners and sellers. So I've seen some deals get done where um you know no no bank was involved at all. Typically that'll be a smaller deal and um maybe a less sophisticated business, but you can go down that route. And some people um, preach kind of buying a business with none of your own money. I mean, technically it's, it's possible, but it, it's, it's, it's probably not what I would advise. So if you're looking to buy, let's just say a business at the, like, I mean, you could do anything. It depends on what you want to earn after debts serviced and things like that. But let's say 300,000 in profit. So after you send that profit to pay off debt and things like that, there's still money left over for you to have a reasonable um, standard of living. Okay, let's use that as a base case example. So that 300,000 in profit, maybe you can pay three times profit to buy that. Um, So 900,000, you could arguably structure that, you know, with a portion of debt, say 50, 60% in debt, maybe... 20% 20% of equity. So that would be under 200,000 in equity. And then the rest you could get what, um, what, what we'd call is deferred compensation or a seller note. So it's basically you're paying off that portion of the business uh, over a period of time. So maybe, maybe it's three years, which is pretty standard. And with that component, there's two interesting pieces to that because one, you have time to pay it off and you can use the profits of the company to pay that piece of it off. And two, you keep the seller with some skin in the game. So it kind of mitigates risk for the buyer. You know, if, if they're really reluctant to, to have a component of that in the deal structure, then you should probably ask yourself why that is. And maybe there's a skeleton in the closet that you, you'll probably find out in due diligence. So, so I'll just keep that in mind. And it's, it's pretty common practice in the UK and, and elsewhere that there is a component of deferred compensation. I've seen deals. I had a guest on my podcast, uh, the one that was actually just released this week. Her first deal, she she financed it with a little bit of equity from herself and then almost entirely um, deferred compensation. So basically paying out the owner over a period of years. It was with interest linked to it. So it's almost like the owner um, was giving her a loan to, uh, himself and getting interest in the principal paid out over time, but that is very un- unlikely, but not impossible. So it's all up to negotiation, but I would say probably you're looking at 
around 20% of it needs to be equity. So think of that as down payment on the house. Um, and then you're probably looking at a portion of debt and then seller compensation. So the, the, the classic structure I'd say is probably about 60 to 70% upfront and 30% of that deferred over, let's say three years. Uh, so 10%, 10%, 10%, roughly speaking. And then of that upfront amount, a large portion of that is going to be debt with a little bit of equity because the banks are not going to give you a loan unless you're putting in a little bit of skin in the game yourself. So they want to know that incentives are aligned. Um, they're not in the, I mean, in general, banks are very pessimistic and credit teams are very pessimistic and entrepreneurs are very optimistic. So when you start having this conversation, there's often a clash in what, what is a good deal and what is not a good deal, but they're going to want to see skin in the game. So, but it doesn't need to be. So for that example, we're paying 900,000 for a business doing 300,000 in profit. You could probably invest 150,000 in equity and be able to get that deal done. Assuming you could get the loan, which is the tricky part of this whole process. And that 150,000 equity doesn't need to be your home, your own money. Like I've invested in some deals myself um, and it's quite, it's quite common practice to go out and raise that outside equity. If it's a good deal and a good entrepreneur, then, you know, th there's lots of money in, in this kind of, well, for the last however many years, low interest rate environment, there's a lot of cash to be deployed. So you technically don't even need to put in a significant of equity out of your own pocket. That just means your ownership percentage is obviously going to come down a little bit. But that's completely fine. I mean, so, so just to give you an idea there, like e even if you don't have all the equity yourself, you can still raise it outside. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it is actually a viable option for, for some people. In terms of the, maybe the specific skills, specific knowledge that you maybe need to go down this route or are even required when it comes to actually getting finance from a bank. Is there anything there that you would would be required as a prerequisite to going on this journey? Do you think? Um, yeah, I, th I think. I think um, at the very beginning, you know, you're going to be able, you're going to have to be able to build rapport with owners and be convincing, sell yourself. And be able to show that even if you don't have that industry expertise, you are able to hold a conversation about that industry uh, and ask good questions. Because basically what you're doing is you're interviewing to be the owner of that new business. The seller is not going to just sell to anybody. It's their baby. They've created that business over you know, 20, 30 years. They want to know that whoever's taking over is going to do the best job. It's not only about money at the end of the day for these sellers. So that's the first piece of it. Um, so having some sector experience obviously helps, but if you don't, uh, like I didn't, I was able to educate myself quite quickly on certain sectors just to be able to have pretty robust conversations. So I think that's the first thing you need to be able to do and be confident that you're able to do that. Um, then, you know, I wouldn't say you really have to be too financially savvy, but just having a basic financial understanding is going to help because you're going to want to just do some rough math to think about, okay, what is this actually worth? What does future cash flows look like? Will it be able to service this amount of debt? And that will help you to kind of 
get a ballpark figure on valuation. So having some simple financial skill sets will help. Although, you know, people like myself or there's others out there that that will look at deals and help people with that if 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 it's you know not their core skill set. Because quite honestly, I think being an, a good operator is probably even an important a more important skill set because once you take over the company, then you need to actually execute. So I think that's probably the most important skill set. Um, and then going back to just the lenders, I think again, just showing that you you are able to you know, that, that you'll be able to run this kind of business, even if you don't have the experience is helpful. Um, and then if you don't, probably you, you're you going to want to have a good team around you, but the bank is going to look at that and say, okay, like for me, for example, I'll, I'll give a, like exactly what happened with me is the business I'm looking to to acquire is in a, a window and door installation company, very classic, um, you know, um, arguably unsexy business, but it's a great, great business. But I know nothing about windows and doors um, other than I have them on my properties. So I, I, um, I had to, you know, just during my due diligence, I built a team around me of people who knew what they, they to look for in this kind of an industry. Uh, they ended up investing alongside me also, which was fantastic. But then when I went to the lenders and had these conversations, I wouldn't say they were easy, but they were easier. At least I got deeper down the line. Um, than if I went alone and just said, okay, well, I'm looking to buy this company because it can be a great deal at a great price. Um, and I can have like, you know, maybe on paper, like an interesting CV because I went to JP Morgan. They're going to be like, okay, you, you know nothing about windows and doors. So you alone, this is terrible. So you either need to build a great team around you or if there's, and this is probably the best solution, look for companies where there's a good second tier management that is going to stay on board and you can either offer them a small piece of equity or incentivize them with some kind of profit share so that they have skin in the game to stay on. I think this is probably the the most attractive um, for the lenders because they they know that there's someone that's been with the company for a period of time that's going to be incentivized to help you execute on this deal. Uh, so those are some of the things you need to think about. Uh, you probably need to put together a good presentation um, when you speak to the lenders to show that, you know, you're a professional, you know how to do modeling, you know, um, like financial modeling, um, you, you have a strong industry thesis and things like that. But again, I, I think people like myself or there's others that could help with that. Um, so yeah, I think at a high level, those are some of the key skills that you'd need, um, at least to get the deal done. And then once it's time to operate, that's a, that's a, that's a whole different skill set. I think really searching, and operating is is almost two different jobs completely. Okay. And how are you searching for these businesses? Are they are they sort of readily advertised or have been put up for sale, or are you just approaching businesses that you you think would be a good a good fit for you as a potential owner? Yeah. So there's two, I guess, approaches broadly speaking. So there's going to the classic broker listings. And looking at businesses that are currently listed for sale, that gives a bit of a mixed bag. And in the UK, this is an unregulated um, market or or being a business broker is an unregulated job. It's an unregulated industry is maybe the, the correct term. And as such, you know, you, you get a very mixed bag. The, the business model for a lot of these brokers is to list companies and take a take a retainer rather than a success fee. So obviously that misaligns incentives. So they tell business owners, oh, I'll be able to sell your business for this 
crazy price. And then when you have these conversations, you can never actually get a deal done because they think their really small business is worth millions and millions. So that can be frustrating, but that is one way to go about it. And I'm painting with broad strokes here, but there are some really good brokers out there with some really good deals. Uh, and then the other way is to actively look for deals as you, as you would say off market. So that's, you know, you have your industry thesis and maybe you have some geographic constraints. So then you will go and actively look, okay, I want to look at um, fire and security companies in the Southeast that are making 500 to 1 million in profit. And then there's a few data platforms out there. One actually has been sponsoring the podcast and they're extremely robust using AI and, and, you know, very sophisticated where you can actually filter um, the data that's available in a company's house, but obviously very not user-friendly uh, and target these kind of companies and then do some proprietary outreach. So you could email them, call them, send them a physical letter uh, and target specific companies, which also has its pros and cons. Typically it'll take a bit longer because there's no intermediary involved initially. Um, but those are the two main ways Um and I think everyone kind of embarking on this should probably do a little bit of both because searching is kind of almost like a sales process. You need to really have a a dense top of funnel in order to be hitting, you know, how many offers have I put in, how many were accepted, how many am I looking at due diligence, and that results in kind of potentially closing one in a certain period of time. Okay. What's the what's the name of the the company that you said sponsors the the podcast? Is is that something that people could maybe check out? I can link them link them in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's, the company itself is called Mark to Market, and the website is marktomarket.io. And I think they have well, I know they have a link up for for people, you know, like individuals because it's it's more for private equity. But they created a a kind of offering for people like myself and others uh, that maybe cannot pay um, you know a hefty subscription so if you go to mark to market.io slash buy and build then they offer a free demo and there you'll be able to kind of use the search functionality and they actually also have a cool on-market aggregator of deals so there's some broker deals but they've also got a strong network of accountants and corporate finance companies which even though they're classic or typically regarded as on-market deals they'll be much higher quality like if you think of a very good company um, that may want to sell, probably their first call is going to be their accountant and say, well, you know, you've been my accountant for 10 years. I'd like to sell. What do you think it's worth? And then those those kind of listed businesses for sale, which are harder to find, uh, are typically better quality. So they actually offer a very interesting um, kind of dual, um, dual deal origination offering them. Okay. But yeah, I guess this is my last question when it comes to barriers to entry the due diligence process, how much would that sort of cost when you go in, you know, undertaking these specific deals? I'd imagine it's quite, quite expensive, maybe a little bit lengthy. How does that work? Yeah. 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 It's a good question, Jay. I, I mean, it can certainly be expensive and to the extent you're taking on outside investors and the sophistication of those investors, they may want uh, a certain level of due diligence done. That's why, I mean, it's my preference to kind of go slightly smaller company where you own slightly more of it, where you can kind of control some of those decisions a little bit more. Not to say that you need to skimp on due diligence. I'm not saying that at all, but for a small business, 
that's relatively simple business model. Maybe you just need to kind of do a more of a risk-based due diligence rather than do like a full quality of earnings. There's only, you know, if it's a small business, there's it's pointless spending tens of thousands in due diligence because then it just kind of doesn't really make much sense. Uh, it's going to start impacting your ROI. At some point, you just need to make an educated decision. So I think probably the two main avenues you want to spend time doing due diligence or let me let me say three, but one you can, one you should be doing yourself. The first is commercial, so you should have already done that before you start looking at a business, and that goes back to an industry thesis, the unit economics of the business itself, what are what's the online reputation, what are its competitors, you know, just classic commercial stuff that you you, you would you would want to think about when you're investing in any business. <clears throat> Excuse me, and then the second is obviously the financial due diligence. You can start some of that yourself, depending on your level of financial sophistication, but it's pretty, even for someone like myself, I'm not an accountant. I certainly am getting an accountant to do my due diligence. They, you know, they have patent recognition, having done this hundreds, maybe thousands of times that they will catch things that I certainly will not. And you can pay anywhere from, I mean, it depends, but I'd say on a very light level, maybe like 7,000, and it can go all the way up to, I'd say on these smaller deals, maybe up to 20,000. So that is a, I would say it's a significant enough cost, but at the same time, you probably don't want to skimp on that because buying a business and finding out there's issues after you take over can obviously be devastating. Yeah. <clears throat> and over the long term, if you're modeling that into your kind of return, um, return on investment assumptions, it kind of filters out. So it's it's a bit of an upfront expense, but it's well worth it in the long run. And then the second piece is the legal side, which again is obviously not something you want to take lightly. And it's definitely not something you can do unless you're a, you're, you're a, a commercial lawyer yourself, <clears throat> which I've never met a commercial lawyer that wants to take this path. So I would recommend you get the legal due diligence done too, which again, it can be, extremely intense or kind of more of a risk-based approach, I tend to, to, to recommend that again for these smaller businesses. I think on the legal side, you just want to make sure there's no skeletons in the closet from a tax perspective, an employee perspective, make sure that the legal documents are just kind of pretty much standard, pretty much in line, and then just get, get the deal done. A lot of times the, the lawyers will try and, you know, start arguing over small points, the, the two sides lawyers, um, which doesn't really make a difference. You just, I think at the end of the day, you just want to kind of keep it quick, make sure there's no skeletons in the closet. If you win some points here, you lose some points here, essentially you just want to make sure the deal gets done in like in the broader sense as to how it was agreed up front. Um, so in that case, you, you could you can look to pay on the legal side, probably anywhere from kind of, 10 to 30,000 also. But again, if you're looking at like a 300,000 deal, I would I would say 300,000 profit that is. You want to be on the lower end of those two numbers I've quoted as you start to get up to kind of the million in profit and things like that, maybe then the business becomes a little bit more complex, there's more employees, so you, there's a little bit more due diligence work and then obviously you're comfortable spending a little bit more on that. So I'm keen now to just to discuss a little bit more about your own journey, how how that's been going since you've started Citium uh, Capital. I mean, for for those listening to this podcast, they can't see what I can see here, but Paul, you're you're currently sat on holiday 
in Mauritius. I can hear the birds in the background. It, it seems like it's going pretty well, <laughs> but give me a bit of an idea of how it's been, how it's been going for you. Yeah. I mean, um, so the holiday is probably misleading then. It, it, I mean, not to say that it hasn't <laughs> been going well, um, but it's certainly been challenging. So I, I had a really interesting deal in the finance security sector that was right at the finish line. Um, and it fell apart kind of at the end of Q3, Q4 of last year. Um, and it was a great business. The owner was already retired, basically sitting in his house in France. And there was someone running the business. Um, and there was one small issue. It About 18% of his revenue was coming from one specific customer. And it was... I can't say too much, but it was in an industry that I think was probably trending towards online. So I knew it was kind of a kind of a, a risk, but I'd factored into my price. But it turned out, I think, COVID-related. At the very end, it had a few CCJs lodged against it, and apparently its credit insurance was getting pulled. And at the time, I did not know exactly what that meant. So I spoke to a few of my friends that worked in credit, and they were basically saying to me, well, this is kind of a forward-looking indicator probably this company is going bankrupt. So I went back to the owner and he was a great guy. He is a great guy. And said to him like, look, I know you don't know, you wouldn't, you, you don't know about this because you would have told me, but this is, this is what I've just heard. Um, you know, we're going to have to restructure the deal a little bit because I need to hedge this risk a bit. And, you know, his opinion was, look, they were struggling a few months ago and now they're paying their bills as, as, as quick as ever. They're, they're, they're the quickest to pay. You know, I see no issue here. And ultimately we couldn't really agree to what was a fair way to hedge that risk. And, and I walked away from the deal. Um, and that was a little bit devastating um, and somewhat expensive because as you can imagine at the finish line, I've paid <laughs> most yeah. of my legal and financial due diligence fees at that point, but that's part of the process, to be honest. I think if you're going into this without an existing company, because a lot of people do this, um, you know, and they already have one under the belt and they kind of buy in that same industry that's okay. You can kind of, you can kind of maybe take that risk and make that acquisition, even if that risk exists. But if it's your first one, you really want it to be a good platform from which to go from. So that deal fell apart. Um, since then, I found a very interesting deal in the window and door installation place uh, space. Sorry, and everything is going extremely well. We're we're deep into due diligence now and targeting a close at the end of June. Um, the tricky piece of this whole puzzle has been the debt component, um, which seems to have sorted itself out now. It was going really well. And I think when everything kind of kicked off in terms of inflation, and I guess the catalyst was what was happening in Ukraine and Russia, and then interest rates started to, to rise, I think that caused a little bit of noise and and kind of, you know, halted some of those conversations, which is a little bit frustrating, but understandable. But now it seems like we've overcome that hurdle. So hopefully everything goes smoothly. And at the end of June, I would have taken over the company. Um, there too, the owners are a good gun- bunch of guys. Uh, I've visited a few times, kind of spent time riding along in the van, seeing how the business works, really getting into the weeds and and um, very, very interesting and, and cool bunch of guys. So I'm excited to get going on that. So hopefully nothing else comes up. And we can just close on that one um, in a smooth manner. And and then from there, I guess we're looking to acquire additional companies in the same sector. So if anyone listening knows a great 
win a non-solution company, please let me know. <laughs> um, and and kind of the few investors that I've had on board um, that have you know not an insignificant stake, but a minority stake. I, I still control the business to a large extent, but they have enough skin in the game that they're keen to see me succeed. And they're great entrepreneurs and successful guys themselves from the sector. Um, they're keen to kind of grow, grow the business and, and, and maybe look at future acquisitions and kind of build onto this first platform company. So I'm pretty excited about that. So hopefully everything can get done smoothly and and yeah, so that's kind of been the journey up until now. So hopefully in two months time, it will be kind of, yeah, about a year and a half since the journey began. Um, and we can, we can close one. I think some people have done it a lot quicker. Um, some people have taken longer. I think I referred to that Stanford study a while ago. And I think on average, it takes about two years. But I think if you're going smaller, um, on a smaller scale, you can do it quicker. I I've looked to try and do like a business around 700,000 in profit. Um, so that's slightly bigger maybe for someone doing it by themselves, but I don't think you necessarily need to go that big. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, it's, it's been a journey. Like I said, I've been investing in some deals as time has gone on over the last 18 months because I've met some fantastic people through the podcast and just through the network. Um, and it's an interesting asset class. And I think I'll probably continue to do that uh, regardless, uh, but hopefully most of it will go into my own investments um, after this first one gets done. Fantastic. And I was going to say, it almost almost feels like there needs to be some sort of podcast which can follow the journey of somebody buying and building a business. And guess what? There is your podcast, the yeah. Buy and Build podcast. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. I mean, that, that was part of it. Uh, at, at the time when we launched, I had a co-host and uh, he's still a friend of mine, David, or we became friends uh, kind of, we didn't know each other when we got into this, but um, we were having similar conversations and kind of sharing insights amongst each other. And we were just saying, you know, there's not many people sharing those insights and, and their journey in the UK, which is a pity because if more people knew about this as an option, it's it's definitely not easy. And by the way, you you can you you can do this while still working uh, in today's day and age. You don't have to stop full time like I did. Um, you know, it could be interesting for people to tackle. So yeah, the, the podcast was kind of that, like sharing our journey and getting on insights of experts in the field that have done this before. So we can kind of learn and accelerate our journey, build a bit of a network. Uh, we were also hoping it would bring deals to the table, which it has not, not significantly, but we've seen some interesting businesses as a result of it. Um, and yeah, it's, it's actually been a really, I mean, you probably know this, Jay, it's been a really cool journey having to... Uh, or, or being able to meet people I would never have met, uh, spoken to some interesting, fascinating people that just you know reach out randomly because they heard the podcast, and it's just been an excellent. Um, what's I guess what started as a side project, but now it's a really really cool project that that I have on board. So, if everything goes smoothly with the the acquisition, um, I've actually bounced around the idea of kind of like uh, keeping. Well, I would definitely keep the podcast going, but maybe you know chronicle the journey just in like vlog format like the first 90 days behind behind the desk as an owner and things like that because i think people really are interested in it and as much as i don't really always want to be the face behind it no one else really wants to share so i'm happy to share as much as i can if it's helpful yeah and, and congratulations on the podcast i know i've listened to a few episodes and even talking to you today and just listening about the process i find it just fascinating how you're 
buying businesses. And for me as an investor, it almost just feels like initially out of reach, but, and I've probably being honest at currently in my stage, it, it, it is, but I, something that now I know I can actually work towards as a, as a route towards, you know, wealth. So it's fascinating. And some of the guests that you've had on your podcast and just going through you know, your learnings as well is, is really good. So yeah, I'm, I'm hooked on the podcast and I recommend the listeners of the wealth journal. If they're, if they're interested in this route to entrepreneurship, then I recommend the buy and build podcast. Um, I think it's, I think it's a yeah great podcast. So yeah, congratulations on that. Yeah. Thanks Jay. I uh, appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's obviously very niche, but if people are keen to have a listen or even reach out directly, I'm happy to chat and answer any questions I enjoy meeting people and, and sharing what the story is about. It's, it's not just about me either. There's some fascinating guests that, that, that come on and have way, uh, way better experience than I have. So check it out. And yeah, I mean, it's been a real pleasure chatting today, today, Jay. I think, oh, I hope the people listening took something out of it and, and, and maybe consider this as a, as a path to entrepreneurship. Uh, if not, then at least they know it exists and maybe they'd like to invest in it as, as a, as, as, you know, a different asset class. I think that's very compelling too. So yeah, it's been fantastic, Jay. I appreciate uh, you getting me on. Oh, no worries. No worries. Thanks for coming on. And of course I will link the buy and build podcast in the show notes so people can go and go and check that out and uh, begin to follow, follow your journey. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for coming on, Paul. And I'm sure we'll, we'll keep in touch and yeah, thanks again. Yeah, absolutely, Jay. Happy to stay in touch. What you're doing with your podcast is fantastic too. Enjoy it. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. And um, yeah, take care. Cheers. 